Okay, it was some time back, and there was this thing called the Public Radio Talent Quest. It was a huge contest for people to get their own public radio show. It was down to the wire. A few contestants left. We were waiting by the phone to see if we lived or if we died. I'm hoping it's me. I'm waiting by the phone. I'm waiting. Hi, Glenn. It's Jake from PRX. How you doing? Hey, Jake. Tell me some good news, Jake. Pack your bags. You're going to Minneapolis. (laughs) Our end of the season special thank you episode we're getting ready for season two, but we got to thank the artists first that made this year possible. The season finale of Snap Judgment, storytelling with a beat from NPR and PRX. Welcome to Snap Judgment from PRX and NPR. My name is Glenn Washington, and friends, friends, this right here, is the final episode of our first season, and we are so proud. People often say, Glenn, where did this show come from? What's this Snap Judgment stuff? And really, this is the truth. To make a long story shorter, I entered a contest. It was a contest to create the next public radio show. It was serious, serious, stiff competition, good people, good people. And in the end, Lady Luck smiled down on your boy. You won. For real, that is what happened. And it was like, whoa, now what are we supposed to do? Because I didn't know anything about radio. I ran nonprofits, and I was like, Mark, 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 look, somebody's going to find out, man. This was scary, friends. We had to get some help quick. And this is a year in celebration. I want to call out and thank, highlight some of those people who helped us out, made this experience possible. They are artisans of storytelling good old-fashioned storytelling. They leapt to the fore. And one of the first people I want to thank is Chandra Shivakumar. This this brother right here, he's quiet, self-deprecating, but really one of the finest storytellers you'll ever hear. He told a story early on about how he was mistakenly looped into the KKK, one of the most favorite stories on our website. But I want to play a story he recently did on our spooked episode, a family tale. His family, all of them are storytellers. You're gonna hear a lot more Chandra coming up in season two, but listen to what he did just a few months ago. This happened in Sri Lanka, a place called Pategama, which was our family's tea estate up in the mountains. My aunt, and my uncle managed it, basically. And one day she was totally fine, you know, running around up there in the mountains. And the next day she woke up and she could not move. She was paralyzed from the neck down. Paralyzed? Paralyzed. She couldn't move her limbs and they had no idea why. About half an hour after she woke up, she had trouble breathing. My uncle had to throw her in the car. They flew down these crazy windy roads down through the mountain and went to Colombo, the capital city, and they went straight to a hospital where she was in the ICU right away. Why was she paralyzed? Well, they couldn't, they couldn't tell. They had no idea. And finally, after three months, they said, look, we have no idea what to do. We don't know what to tell you. But there's this Sri Lankan priest. He's a Catholic priest. He might have some answers for you. Our folks are Hindu. But they decided, why? Why are they going to this priest? He had a reputation of being able to find answers where no one else could. He told my uncle later on that 
one day he was just a regular old Catholic priest and running Mass, and the next day he had some terrible gift from God, he said, that allowed him to see evil. So my uncle said, all right, we don't have any other choice. My uncle went and found him. Yeah, he walked to the ICU with my uncle, who is a, he's a very, he was a very practical fellow and not totally given to the belief in the occult like a lot of my relatives, or even myself for that matter. So he was a little skeptical, but he walked in with this man and the man just said, I see evil, evil has been done here. And he was so adamant about it that my uncle had to listen to him and then proceeded to follow his direction. What were his directions? He said, look, you and I have to get up back to the tea estate right away. So my uncle put him in the car and they drove back four hours. For what was he looking for? Well, the source of the evil. He said, basically, my aunt had been cursed. By the time they got there, it was about midnight. The priest said, look, you and I, we have to walk around the grounds until I can find this. So he spent an hour walking through the lawn and through every single room in the house. It was a big, big, beautiful estate house. And he got to their bedroom and he looked out the window and he said, there, I see the curse. And my uncle looked out and he said, I don't see anything. What are you talking about? He's like, I see it. It is right there. It is there in the corner of the house. And my uncle said, well, what are we supposed to do now? He's like, go find some men, get some shovels and meet me down there on the corner. So he rounded up a few of the workers who were there and the man said, well, start digging. Right here. He knew exactly what it did. Yeah. He said he could see it. He could see a glow, an evil glow, emanating from underground. And they dug for about half an hour. And then his shovel hit this little metal container. He heard this clang, so he stopped. And the priest said, okay, hold on. And he looked into this little hole and he said, yeah, it's right there. Please bring that up. My uncle jumped into this little hole that he had dug. There was a little tin box. And the priest said, have you ever seen this before? He said, no. And he said, did you put this here? My uncle said, no, I have no idea what this is. So the priest said, okay, good. He opened up this tin box. What's inside? What's inside? What's inside? What's inside? <laughs> and inside this little tin box lay this little voodoo doll. It was made out of mud and clay, and it was wrapped in some kind of cloth. It was in the shape of a human, a little body. And in this little mud figurine were some needles. Needles in the ankles, needles in the wrists, and one needle right in the throat. And like I'd said before, upon entering the ICU, she had had to get a tracheotomy because she couldn't breathe. My uncle was pretty excited and really nervous and a little scared. Actually, really scared, he told me. And the priest said, I need to replenish my energies. And he shut the little tin box and he said, look, go find as much liquor as you can. They got all the whiskey they could collect. They went upstairs back to the bedroom. And this priest said, all right, you and I are gonna drink right now for the next half hour. And these guys finished off a few bottles of whiskey. A few bottles? I think it was like, yeah, two bottles of whiskey that finished off, polished off. <laughs> Uncle said that was the drunkest he's, he's ever gotten in his life. And he thought, now that we've discovered the voodoo doll, we can get drunk and sleep and head back in the morning. But instead, the priest said, Go get your keys, we're going for a ride. We have to take this doll to the ocean right away. My uncle said, there's no way we should, you know, we should not do this, this is a suicide trip. And the priest said, I'm really sorry, but you know, we have to. And this is something that mothers against drunk driving would not be pleased about in the slightest. Yeah, this was some serious drunk driving. And they, this is in the middle of the night, 
in the middle of through a jungle area. This is in the middle of nowhere. I mean, this is four hours up a steep incline, not paved. And my uncle said there's no way that we should have survived that trip with all the boulders and trees and ruts and bison and buffalo roaming through, jackals and komodo dragons, cobras and tigers. Well, maybe no tigers. And all sorts of crazy monsters lurking in those jungles back in the day. They make it through. They made it through. They got to the ocean. The priest said, all right, get out of the car. And they stumbled their way to the ocean, to the beach. And he took the little voodoo doll out of the tin box. And he gave it to my uncle. And he said, throw it as far as you can. So my uncle took it and just threw it off right into the ocean waves. And he saw the thing disintegrate. And then the priest said, all right, let's go to the hospital. So they got back in the car. And they drove right to the hospital to see my aunt. Doctors came to my uncle and said, I don't know what just happened, but this past few hours, something has occurred. And miraculously, somehow or other, my aunt said, hey, guess what? In the past hour, I'm able to move. There's more feeling in my toes and my fingers. And my uncle said, I have no idea what happened or what to believe, but something crazy happened that night, thanks to this priest. What did your uncle owe the priest? What did he give the priest in return? You know, I don't think he gave him anything, actually. The priest said, this is my duty to humanity. This is a gift from God. You know, he said it's also a curse. But a he curse? Said, Why? Well, because he has this ability now to feel and see and sense evil wherever he goes. So I imagine it wasn't such a pleasant experience for him. Everywhere he went, he saw the bad stuff. Yeah, I guess I think it actually, he saw a little too much of it. Why? Well, I asked my uncle what happened to this guy. You know, I thought maybe I could go track him down. And, but my uncle said he's now serving a life sentence for the murder of his wife. He murdered his wife? He poisoned her to death, yeah. He I, has a wife as a priest. Why would he poison his wife? I'm not sure. Um, I, I, yeah, it was shocking. And my uncle basically said that the word on the island was this man had stared into the abyss a little too much and it had started to stare back. And he had fought off all this evil for so long and it started to infuse his soul. You know, he uh, started doing bad, evil things himself. All right. Stay safe, Jondra. Stay safe. Well, this next brother... I met him randomly at a poetry slam. I saw him selling copies of his then-new music album, Grow the Good. We talked a little. I saw him later. We talked some more. And it turns out he was an artist extraordinaire. Musician, beatboxer, poet. He created his own stage show in San Francisco. He's a mental health advocate. It just doesn't stop. And when I decided to create Snap Judgment Live, the, the stage show, this was the first partner I called. And to say he rocked the live show is an absurdly belittling understatement. He killed it. Killed it. And so I'm just going to start off myself. I want to give a great big snap judgment round of applause from Mr. Joshua Walter. <laughs> Did you know 
that you can get porn through Netflix. I learned this while hanging out with my grandmother, <laughs> Nana, in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Nana's a nice woman in her 90s with short gray hair, a different outfit for every day of the week, but she has no idea what she gets on Netflix. <laughs> a DVD came in the mail with a very unporn-like title. It was Robert Vincent in the library. So there we are in the beige-colored TV room, and we put the DVD in the machine, and in comes Pops. Now it's Pops, Nana, family time. And we sit down, and the movie begins. First screen, it's a little grainy. It's kind of a grainy black screen. It's kind of a low budge black. A low budget. Why is it so low budge? And the first title comes up and it says Playboy Entertainment. And I say, hey, 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 I think this is porn. <laughs> we're not watching porn, they say. We're just watching a nice movie from Netflix. Okay? We're not watching porn. Don't be ridiculous. Don't be ridiculous. The opening scene is a man in a fedora hat, sharply dressed in a bar, who approaches a nice woman in a blue velvet number. And they're sitting there at the bar, and they're chatting it up, but they're chatting it up a little too fast. It's a little too fast. Just the first minute of this movie, the conversation is moving a little too fast. And I'm wondering, I'm thinking, this, this movie is just going too fast for normal movies. And I get this sneaking suspicion. I say to them, I say, hey, hey. Hey, I think this is porn. <laughs> this is not porn, they say. This is not porn. We're not watching porn. We're just watching a nice movie, okay? We're just watching a nice movie. Stop, stop saying that. We're just watching this, okay? Just calm down and just watch it with us. But now the man in the fedora hat is getting closer to the woman at the bar, and it's become a close-up of their faces and the mouths and starting to get closer. And I just have this sneaking suspicion, this sneaking suspicion that something terrible is about to happen. Something terrible is about to happen and people need to know about it. And I say, hey, 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 Nana, hey, Dad, hey, Nana, Dad, hey, Nana. Hey, Nana, Dad! <laughs> hey, I think this is porn! 
And they say, will you stop all that ruckus? This is not porn. We're not watching porn, okay? Stop all that ruckus. You're being so annoying. Stop that. We're just trying to watch a nice movie here. We're just trying to watch a nice movie here. We're just trying to watch a nice... And the next scene is money shot. <laughs> Coin in the slot. Money shot. Coin in the slot. 100, 100, zoom, focus. Coin in the slot. Coin in the slot. Cha-ching! Coin in the slot. Money shot. Cha-ching! 100, 100, zoom, focus. 100, 100, zoom, focus. 100, 100, zoom, focus, 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 focus. And they're like, look what you've done! And they're mad at me, and their faces are red and angry, and they're angry at me and frustrated and embarrassed. And I've never seen Nana's face so angry. I've never seen Dad's face so angry. And they're over me, and they're angry, and they try to get the DVD out of the machine, and it won't come out. They try to get the DVD out of the machine, and it won't come out. And finally they get it out, they throw it to the floor, and they storm out of the room. They storm out of the room. And that's how I learned you can get porn through Netflix. <laughs> Thank you, Joshua Walters, Joshua Walters, thejoshuawalters.com. And I want to thank everybody involved in the live show. And if you want Snap Judgment Live to come to your town, let somebody know. Snapjudgment.org also has the live radio shows. And coming out this winter, the live TV shows are going to be airing on World TV. This is the end of season one, but we're cooking something special for season two. We're going to be right back after a very short break. Snap Judgment, the finale. Our end of the season special thank you episode. We're getting ready for season two, but we got to thank the artists first that made this year possible. And that brings me to one of our first hires. There was this young woman kind of shyly approached me. It was Stephanie Fu, she said. She said that, you know, she really wanted to be a storyteller. She really wanted to get the heart of the story, the truth, the soul, I thought. Pretty words. Miss Stephanie Fu. But get out there and find me a story. Well, Stephanie Fu did. And she did it again and again and again. This one right here, this is one of my favorites. I love everybody up in this story. Miss Stephanie Fu.
Aphrodite was a blonde. The ideal woman was, in the summer of 76, tanned with gleaming white teeth and flipped out hair. She was an angel. The Farrah Fawcett picture in the red bathing suit was the poster that all the boys had. She was the female icon. I would study that poster of her. I knew that this was a female and that I wasn't that. Nobody could mistake Sarah for a goddess. She was 16 and she was still flat-chested. No hips, no butt, no period. I would stuff athletic socks in a bra that was too big for me. And then one day in basketball practice, on the other end of the court, I saw a sock. The girls saw it. They called me Tank. The next day, one of the girls said, Susie, have you got a tissue? Tank, do you have a tissue? No, I don't have any tissues. Check your bra, Tank. Horrified. 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 But that wasn't the end of it. Things got worse as Sarah got taller and taller, six foot three, and fitting in became impossible. I looked more like I belonged on the defensive line of the high school football team. When she was 16, Sarah's parents finally became concerned about her lack of development, and they took her to see some doctors. They said that I'm genetically female. But Sarah had gonadal dysgenesis. Instead of ovaries, she had gonadal streaks, lumps of undeveloped tissue inside her that would become cancerous. They scheduled a surgery to remove the lumps and to see whether she had female sexual organs or whether they'd have to construct them within her. I was so ashamed that something about my gender and my genitalia was wrong. The last thing she hoped when they put her to sleep was that she would wake up normal. And the first thing my mom whispered into my ear was, you're a girl and you don't have to have any more surgeries. And her father came up and told her, you're all girl, you're 100% girl. She went on estrogen and developed breasts, but her body never looked quite like the other girls. She realized that she would never be a regular woman. And she was afraid that because of that, nobody would ever love her. I felt like that was God saying, you thought maybe you could escape and actually have a life and have children and be normal? No way, honey. I will squash you like a bug anytime you think you're going to have any happiness. But then came David. I very briefly was singing with a band, and David was friends with some of the bandmates. I was singing Me and Bobby McGee, Janis Joplin, and there weren't enough microphones, and I offered to share my microphone with this cute guy. He put his hand around my hip, I put my hand around his hip, and we swayed to the music, and David and I just talked and talked. It didn't matter what he was saying, I thought he was hot. At first, Sarah couldn't believe he was really into her. And I kept wondering, he doesn't seem to notice that I'm big, he doesn't seem to notice that I'm overweight, he just seems to really like me. He is either so highly evolved that he's not seeing the imperfections of the packaging, or he's a liar. And so we're in Sausalito, and we're hugging and kissing in the street, and some construction workers yell, get a room, fellas. I was mortified, because I thought now David's going to really notice how different I look, and... He just turned and laughed and said, you think she's a guy? You're idiots. David made Sarah feel like a woman. Well, a loud, brash, unladylike interpretation of a woman anyway. He made her feel like herself. And so, two years later, 
she's the one who proposed. I had a pendant made that had, Will You Marry Me, David, written on one side. I got down on one knee in the hot tub and gave him the necklace. And he just said, yes, of course. Sarah and David found a priest, drove to Santa Cruz, and on a grassy knoll by the sea, they eloped. And they lived in wedded bliss for almost two decades. Last year, 19 years into their marriage, Sarah happened to be surfing the web. She'd always accepted the doctor's diagnosis, but she was curious and decided to Google her condition. And that's when she discovered something called Swire Syndrome. Remember when Sarah's father told her that she was a 100% girl? Well, he wasn't telling 100% of the truth. Though Sarah's body is physically female, she has XY chromosomes. Male chromosomes. After they diagnosed her, the doctors approached her father and said, if you want, we can make her a three-inch penis. Obviously, he turned them down, but nobody ever asked Sarah. Here I am, genetically male, and I had never thought until last year. I had never even considered the idea that I hadn't been told the complete truth. I thought I knew it all, my whole story. This explained everything. The reason why Sarah never felt like a woman is that she never was one. She wasn't a female with tomboyish traits. She is genetically male with female traits. I identify as an intersex human being. I live in this middle ground, and this middle ground ain't a bad place to be. This new person is still Sarah. She was happy with the person she'd cultivated over the past 20 years. Sarah could never have been an angel, but hermaphroditus was a god. But how would David react to Sarah's new identity? What would you do if your wife of 20 years came out to you as genetically male? My wife is named Sarah. She's tall, strong, beautiful. She's got breasts. She's got genitalia. She's female. And that's just the way I treat it. It's that simple for me. And it, when it last, and all this came up last year, my take on it was, okay, so now you know a little more details than you did before. But it doesn't change who you are. It couldn't. Easy boy when Bobby sang the blues Feeling good was good enough for me Good enough for me and Bobby McGee If I had been an emotionally capable 17-year-old, I might have opted to go the male direction. I think I might have opted to keep my genitalia just as it is now, take testosterone, have a beard, and someone out there will love me. And I think David would have. If David would have too. If David had come along in 1988 and found that Sarah living as Sam, David would have fallen in love with that person. Do you really think that? You know, I'd like to think so, and I, I gotta tell you, ain't nobody ever gonna know. Update and update, Sarah and David renewed their vows on the same hill, the same knoll overlooking Santa Cruz that they eloped on 20 years ago. That's right. Happy endings. Happy endings even on Snap Judgment. Congratulations, Sarah and David. Our thank you show. This is our thank you show. I got to get to Miss Rebecca Hertz. Rebecca 
megahertz, Lord. We don't have any more Rebecca megahertz. She's gone. She's done run off to Africa to direct shows for TV. Now, sometimes the best stories are the stories you live, and Rebecca lives. Every bit of juice from this orange called life will be Rebecca's. And this story, this story is just a taste. My junior year in high school, I was a militant feminist. I was a riot girl. Suck my left one! It was the early 90s. I wanted to get away from all men, and I wanted to get as far away from home as I possibly could. I wanted to go to Barnard the Women's College of Columbia University in New York City. Getting into that school was going to be my ticket out. My grades were great, and I knew I had to keep them that way. So I took chemistry my junior year. I was getting straight A's. It was an arts high school. So for the final, the chem teacher, Mr. Hutchinson, decided to do something creative. Instead of a final, everybody had to write a 10-page paper and give an oral report on something scientific society's problem with something, anything. Now, I had spent the year reading the seminal texts of early feminism, and I had just finished reading Alice Walker's book, Possessing the Secret of Joy, which is a novel about female genital mutilation in Africa. And I knew a lot of girls and boys in school who were sexually active, but didn't know what a clitoris was. I knew what my report would be. Everybody else's report sucked. I got up in front of the class and announced my report. Society's problem with the vagina. Vagina, vagina. I had done a ton of research. I explained modern gynecology and obstetrics, episiotomies, how in some traditions women were required to hold up a bloody sheet on the wedding night, and if they didn't bleed, well, they were killed. Also, the girls and boys in the class finally learned what and where was the clitoris. They all loved it. But not Mr. Hutchinson. He never looked up at me. Not even once. The next week, he told me he was going to fail me. I hadn't gotten permission to do a report on that subject. So he was within his rights. An F? I'd never gotten an F before. It was so unfair. This teacher had the power to destroy my dreams of escaping to college. My life was ruined. We were walking across campus to Chem Lab, and all the kids in my class spontaneously confronted Mr. Hutchinson. You can't fail her. She gave the best report by far. It was so well-researched. It was engaging. Hello, we actually learned something. We'll go to the principal. So I got an A minus. And after writing 10 drafts of a normal, boring college application essay, I ended up telling this story instead. And that's how I got into college. The hard way. The next year, someone did a report on the penis. Oh, poor Mr. Hutchinson. So uncomfortable. Did you like that story? I did. Did you? Did you? Well, guess what? Special feature. You're going to like the animated special even better. Check it out. The Vagina Report right now on snapjudgment.org. Animated 
by Snap Judgment's own Mr. Joe Going. Now you're leaving us, Rebecca. Have a good time. Go ahead. We miss you. But remember, once you go snap, you never go back. Now, Rebecca was an original Riot Girl. And if you, too, have a Riot Girl story, hit us up on the site, snapjudgment.org. We'll have a link to Bikini Kill, who provided the music for the animation and the story. Now then, I get to talk about my brother in crime. I mentioned before that I entered a contest and won a radio show, and that's true. And, and really, you know, when I think back, you know, when I think back, I get kind of teary-eyed, kind of choked up just recollecting all that. Because you remember all that hollering and screaming we did at each other in front of the dining room table there, Mark? You remember that? I do. Well, <laughs> that's because Mark, Mark has his own storytelling sensibility. He's a storyteller in his own right. And it's easy for him because what Mark does is all this stuff you're not supposed to do. And then he goes and tells stories about it. Mark Ristich. Please stand clear of the closing doors. You're now boarding the ghost train. You know the ghost train in New York City? If you want to go from Brooklyn to Queens and you don't want to go through Manhattan, you got to take the ghost train, the G train. Now, if you miss the G train, it's going to be 35 minutes until the next one. Well, it is late at night. I am obliterated, out of my mind after band practice. I run down the stairs and I see the ghost train just sitting there, doors closed, ready to take off. I call out, appeal. Hey, hey, hey! No sympathy from the ghost conductor. Now, I want to go home bad. And then I think about this guy at work, Mikey Ferrara. He told me about how when he was little, 14 or 15, he and his friends would ride on the outside of the train, on the end car, from station to station. Now, I'm in the middle. I don't have time to get down to the end car. But I look, between the cars, there are these stiff steel springs. And I think, I'm pretty athletic. I put one hand on one of the springs, another on the other spring. I put one foot on the bottom spring, and then all of a sudden, the train starts taking off. And I'm skipping along, one foot on the platform, one foot on the spring, ready to make my move to the middle of the car. I'm going to get home, get in my bed, and everything's going to be cool. And then all of a sudden, I hear a voice. Hey! I hop back off. I look down the platform. Is it a cop? No, it's just a guy. But the guy comes up on me. Comes up on me fast. He's in my face, and he says, Hey! What, do you got a death wish? I'm like... No, no, I, I was going to miss the G-Train. He's like, you missed it already. I said, but it's 35 minutes until the next one. He's like, good, sit there and wait 35 minutes and think about how stupid you are. It only took me 25 minutes to figure out how stupid I was. What? What? Did you like the ghost train? Did you? Like the ghost train? Well, guess what? You can't stop the snap train, baby. Head over to snapjudgment.org and see an animated film about this, too. That is right. An animated ghost train film. Now, there is more in store. So 
much more in store when Snap Judgment continues. Stay tuned. back to snap judgment voted the best radio program in the tri-county region by severett and sons thank you very much today is a celebration we're celebrating these artists and we're celebrating naivete because when you don't know anything about anything and you're trying to do something it is good to bring on an experienced hand an old veteran to the task and we did fella by the name of roman mar And I said, Roman, Roman, listen to me. We're trying to make the best radio in the Tri-County region. The best. So what do you have for me? Give me a story. Roman Mars brought it hard. A few months before the end of the world, Paul Monaco posted this message on YouTube. Hello, everyone. Paul Monaco here. Buddha Paul, as most of you know me as. Um... You probably all heard the news. Yayland, the Sims Online, closing down. The world that was ending was called The Sims Online. It was an online version of the most popular computer game ever made. You've all been wonderful. You've helped me through a hard time in my life when I first got online. But ironically, the online version of The Sims was not very popular. They ended up losing tons of subscribers and changing the name to EA Land, and then they finally pulled the plug. Thank you, and uh, please, let's, let's try to stay in touch. And if not, um, good luck with, with um, whatever you choose to do and move on to. As you can probably hear, EA Land was not a normal video game. There were no monsters, no killing, and although it had some competitive elements, for many players, competition wasn't the point at all. Unlike a lot of other games where you might be shooting people or slaying dragons or something. This was a game about socializing. That is Robert Ashley. I'm Robert Ashley. He produces a very popular internet radio show. I'm the creator of A Life Well Wasted. A Life Well Wasted. It's about video games and the people who love them. And EA Land was a video game that a dedicated few absolutely loved. The crowd that it attracted, I think, were people who just wanted to get together and sort of chat, meet strangers. It was a nice place. Over time, it became a kind of intimate almost bar, like the cheers of video games. Where everyone knows your name. And at the moment that Paul Monaco, AKA Buddha Paul, found EA Land, it was exactly what he needed most. My wife um, had a, a long-term illness. She, um, from a blood transfusion, she had hepatitis C. And the last three years or so of her life were pretty 
you know, pretty much a challenge for well for both of us. And after she passed away, I, I had absolutely no function other than to wake up, go to work, and and go to sleep again. With with her illness, I didn't get out and socialize much. We you know we weren't able to you know go out to the bars and meet up with friends and have dinner. I totally desocialized myself. And this game was kind of a way for me to just kind of get back into into living again. Uh, it was it was pretty amazing. And Paul began to live for EA Land. He would play it for hours and hours. It was the first thing he did when he got home from work. You treated to a big warm greeting. Everyone would, uh, you know, say hi, and you you know your your IMs would be beeping along, and uh, you'd be inundated with that. Uh, it, it made you feel really good. It wasn't the real world, but his friends were real friends, and virtual worlds do have an upside. Your race, your color, your religion, all that can be totally masked, and you're truly judged on who you really are and how you present yourself. There's no no prejudice, there's no preconceived anything. It's just, you're really taken at face value. People could really like break loose and, and be themselves and have some fun. It just feels really good. But Paul's utopia didn't last because EA Land started hemorrhaging money. The writing was on the wall, the server was about to go dark, and this event, this virtual apocalypse, might only exist in the memory of the players if it weren't for Dr. Henry Lowood. I had just stumbled across um, this project by Henry Lowood. Uh, my name is Henry Lowood. Who is this archival researcher at Stanford. And I had a project called How They Got Game which is on the history of digital games and simulations. Saving video games for future generations. You know, 50, 100, 200 years from now. How are we going to save that history? You know, like, we've got to save the video games. So Dr. Lowood and his colleagues preserve what happens inside video games. Now, for a single-player game like Pac-Man, for example, this is easy. You effectively take the Atari cartridge out and you put it on a shelf. But saving multiplayer online games is not so simple. Saving the software alone is kind of a barren exercise. If you save the code for EA Land and turn it on 100 years from now, you'd enter a world and nothing would be there. All the things that Paul Monaco and his friends loved would be impossible to find. You need to document what people are doing in these spaces. That situation is much more like what a historian or an archivist would do when faced with the problem of documenting the real world. So when Dr. Lowood caught wind of EA Land shutting down, he had the opportunity to record something a historian or archaeologist would die to witness firsthand in the real world. To see what it would be like when an online world came to an end. What happens when a virtual world closes? The end of a culture. What is it like to be there at the, in the last minute and when it shuts down? So the tape is rolling and the last few hours of EA Land are being recorded and the most dedicated diehard users are there exchanging virtual hugs, reminiscing. The players are typing messages which appear like comic book word bubbles and you hear all these avatars crying and you hear all these coos and moans and the gibberish language of the game called Simlish. And you know, they, they sound like they're going to be bummed and, uh, and everything, but it's not like a big pity party. But then toward the, the end of, of the night, there's this radio station that you could listen to in the game called Charmed Radio. And they had this DJ there uh, named Spike. He is sort of the only voice that you end up hearing at the end of the world. And as soon as he starts talking, you understand what is being lost. Hey guys, the last time you're going to hear me speak, well, 
the last time before TSI goes down. I just want to thank you all. Um, it's been an amazing experience. It really has. And I promise I wouldn't make myself cry, but I can't. I can't stress enough how much you guys have meant to me over the past however many years it's been. It really has been awesome. And uh, some people don't get attached to things, but uh, when you make when you make friends, all the people have in this game. It's actually really hard. <laughs> so, uh, I'm gonna play the last song. It's Sarah Brightman and Andrea Bocelli. Time to say goodbye. <laughs> Hopefully, you guys will uh, keep in touch. My Yahoo ID is one two three four five. Why? One two three four five. Good luck in life, everybody, and uh, best wishes. I love you all, and uh, it's been great knowing you. Take care guys and uh, let's just, I just want to, even if you haven't got a drink, let's propose a toast to Parazad who's been absolutely amazing. Parazad, we couldn't have done this without you. Thank you. You get this feeling like being on the deck of the Titanic. Anyone who actually stayed to the end was very much invested in the game on an emotional level. When they pulled the plug on the server, bits and pieces of the world started disappearing. The environment began to disintegrate. The texture on the trees flickered, and all the people froze and blinked out of existence. The actual ending was, was uh, you know, not with a bang, but with a whimper. And the last thing that they saw was basically just an error message, a server disconnect message. And then, the world ended. That's right. Remix Radio is, of course, lucky to have them. But once a snapper, always a snapper, Roman Mars. Sure. We'll miss Roman Mars, but we've got Rita Daniels. The thing about Rita is, every time she tries to tell a story about her childhood, I've seen this happen. She says, I'll gather around, I'm going to tell you a story about what happened. Every time he tells one, I watch the assembled crowd's foreheads furl up in this collective, what? It never fails. And that is really right there, that what? That is what we're looking for right here at Snap Judgment, the furled forehead. Understand, this is not her voice. You will not hear Rita Daniels here, but rest assured, she is the only person in the world from whom this would come, Rita Daniels. Today, we're all about superheroes. And right now we're going old school. People, they misuse the term, but you know, on Snap Judgment, when we say old school, we mean old school. We're going back several thousand years to Hanuman, the all-loving, fierce warrior, monkey god. He can move mountains. He can overthrow armies of demons single-handedly. And according to our next guest, he can even save a white boy's life when he's wandering about in a place he has no business. John Kane was visiting an ashram out in the country outside Vrindavan, India. And it was just getting dark right when he was about to leave. And the saint there asked me if these two young women could accompany me back to Vrindavan so that they wouldn't have to walk alone in the dark. 
And when he said that, I was like, uh-oh. I felt the hair stand up on the back of my neck, and I was like, something's going to happen. So we're walking back, and it was so dark we could hardly even see the path in front of us. There's no lights. There was no moon. And uh, to get back to the village we were in, we had to cross a bridge on the River Yamuna. And when we got to the bridge, all of a sudden I felt that sense of uh, imminent danger again. And I said to the women, get behind me, get behind me right now. And as we walk onto the bridge, we hear steps running towards us and couldn't see a thing. It was so dark, we couldn't see. All we could hear is their footsteps. And in my fear, from the depths of my being came this chant this uh, name for Hanuman which is his warrior name and I yelled out Bajrangabali Ki Jai and as I yelled that out all of a sudden there was a bright green light and I could see everything and I could see that there were five people running towards us with clubs in their hands and as the one came towards me to hit me with his club I reached up and the next thing I knew I had his club in my hand and started swinging the club around and yelling out, Jai Hanuman! And chasing them off the bridge. They ran so fast from me that they ran right out of their shoes. When I yelled out that, it came from somewhere in the depths of my being that I could never repeat again. And I, could, I couldn't, if I tried my hardest, come up with that volume of sound and that voice. We continued on after I chased them off the bridge, and as we were heading back to the town, hundreds of people were coming out of the town because they had heard my yell, which the town was a good half a mile from the bridge, and they had seen a giant green Hanuman standing over the bridge with his arm up with his club in his hand. Snap Judgment, the season one grand finale was produced by myself, but never alone. Never alone. Who did that amazing, that amazing Snap Judgment live theme song? You're listening to it right now. That's Alex Mandel and the Snap Judgment players. On bass, Tim Frick. Rocking them sticks, though. That's David Brandt, and you know DJ Ben Smooth Rules Picasso is hitting them turntables. It's no joke. No joke. Yeah. Feeling kind of poorly, your heart stopped, got a cough? Well, maybe you need to turn to the Uber producer, Mr. Mark Ristich. Dude, I'm a respiratory therapist. Stephanie Fu spends her weekends productively. Everybody loves a good murder. And Rita Daniels, our Rita Daniels has some advice for motorists. I renounce you in the name of Jesus Christ. And Anna Sussman has some advice on how not to get lost. They met at Bob's Big Boy in Glendale. Will Urbina, he knows how to entertain the ladies. 
come over to my house. We're having some drinks and meat pies. We are proud to welcome Joe Goling to the Snap family and mad props to Christian Pollock, the best photographer in the radio business. And I've got some special contributors that really made this year blow up. We want to thank Mr. Dirk Schwartzoff, who kept us from one musical problem after another, saved us with his original compositions. Thank you, Dirk. And Jeff Greenwald. People love the Jeff Greenwald. His new book, Snake Lake, is available in stores right now for your gift-giving pleasure. Who wouldn't like that? I know I would. Sarah Jesse. She's all kindness and light and cookies and treats. Mark Bermudi Joseph, Joyce Lee, Josh Healy. And you know what? We want to thank the entire Youth Speaks team. Those end-of-the-year gifts couldn't go to a better organization. YouthSpeaks.org. Jessica Height, Jeanette Aguilar. And if you hear some noise on the roof, you see somebody trying to climb down your chimney well, Santa don't wear flip-flop, friends, because it might just be the Corporation for Public Broadcasting up there, and I keep a fire on See if that scares them away. They've got lots of work to do. Many thanks from us to them. Many thanks to the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. And if the public is red, and the radio is yellow, and you mix them all together, PRX is orange. Keeping the public in radio. PRX.org. Many thanks to the PRX crew. And please understand, please understand, this is not the news. In fact, you can invent a gravity-repelling hover ship, pack it with childhood amusements, use genetically enhanced reindeer as flying navigation protocols, Deliver your said enjoyables to all the world's children in a single night and you would still not be as far away from the news as this is. But this is in 